All right, I have this important and true story to read to you. A Californian and an Oregonian go to a bakery. The Californian steals three donuts and puts them into his pockets. He says to the Oregonian, That took great skill and guile to steal those donuts. The owner didn't even see me. That's just simple thievery, the Oregonian replies. I'll show you how to do it the honest way and get the same results. The Oregonian then proceeds to call to the owner of the bakery and says, Sir, come on over here. I want to show you a magic trick. The owner feels intrigued, so he comes over. The Oregonian asks him for a donut. He waves his hands over the donut like a magician. Then he proceeds to eat it. He asks two more times, waves his hand, and eats them too. A little exasperated that he just lost three donuts, the owner says, Okay, my friend, where's the magic trick? The Oregonian then says, Look into the pockets of the Californian. I think all the Oregonians laughed and all the Californians were just like... Okay. So besides super fast Californians driving in a car that's way nicer than yours, which is all Oregonians have experienced that, does anyone have any other pet peeves? Keeping in mind this is church and it's got to be church appropriate. Let's have one or two people shout out something that just drives you crazy. That's Okay, Willow. That was the exact one yesterday night, too. That was the very first one from Jeanette Bakke. Hi, Jeanette. Anyone else? Anyone else? People tailing you? Okay. Just the one. You guys don't have any pet peeves. That's great. What a cheerful group. Oh, Jeremiah. Really slow? <laughs> That's more, you're, you're after my own heart with that one. Yes. Oh, Jeremiah. Pastor Jeremiah. Oh. Who is he thinking of with that one? <laughs> oh, yes, Mary. They're all driving. Oh, yes. Yeah, right away they're already honking. It's so rude. Yeah, okay, last one, last one. Oh. Oh, yeah, you have the green light and they make you wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, lots of transportation-related pet peeves today. So I want to tell you one that I have, which is high-priced grocery stores. So I live in Phoenix, and the store there is Ray's Food Place. It's right there. And yeah, good. And the other day, all I wanted was a box of cereal. And I'm like, I'm not going to drive all the way to Medford just to get a box of cereal. I'm going to go to Ray's. And as I walked into the store, I was stealing my, my mind for what I knew was coming, which is the highway robbery in the cereal aisle at Ray's Food Place. Nothing against Ray's, by the way, but have you seen their cereal prices? So I was like, David, I know, see, I know myself. I know that I'm perfectly capable of leaving a store, driving miles further, just to buy something that's slightly cheaper, even though I know I spent more than I saved on gas just to do that. So I was like, you're not going to drive to Medford for one box of cereal. Just buy it, whatever it costs. Try not to even look at the price. So I walked down the cereal aisle, Looked at the box that I wanted, $7.50, bam, out the door. <laughs> I drove all the way to Medford, I bought it for $4, saved $3.50, burnt $5 in gas, yes. and I felt so much better. <laughs> okay, here's a real one. This is actually relevant to you. So, uh, yeah, yes, the home of honest goodness. Uh, so, people who think they're highly educated, and they very wisely tell you, you know, 
the Bible was written hundreds of years after Jesus, and we don't really even know anything. We don't even know if he really existed. That's a pet peeve of mine, because they think that they're educated, but in fact, they're just so ignorant. So we actually have manuscripts from some of the books of the Bible, including John and Mark, that are only um, in the low 100s. They've, they've dated them back to the, to the early 100s, which is, you know, if, if John, they think, maybe lived into the 90s, it's only one generation after Jesus' generation. It's very early. So the Bible was not written in the 400s or the 500s, that people say. It actually dates back, even like the most skeptical atheist Bible scholars in Harvard and so on, they date the New Testament to the first century because of the style of Greek, because of the ancient manuscripts that we have that go way back, and because of other reasons. Do you know that we have over 20,000 quotations from the New Testament that are found in non-biblical sources? Early church father writings. They love to quote the Bible. We could actually rewrite almost the entire New Testament just from quotations that we found in, in the church father's writings. We could lose every manuscript and we could rewrite most of the New Testament. So you can't really quote a book that hasn't been written yet. But they quoted it 20,000 times. So you should know that your Bible is an accurate historical document, and it really is a first century document written by the people who were alive when Jesus was alive. Don't let anybody tell you the Bible is not a reliable historical document. That's even more wrong than a $7.50 box of cereal. You can believe that. So knowing a little bit about Matthew's life and the times he lived in helps us to understand the message of his book because he wrote it with his own times in mind. The Jews of Matthew's day were seething with discontent under Roman rule. Didn't like the Romans. Nobody likes to be a second-class citizen in their own country. You can just imagine how you would feel if the Canadians came down and invaded our country and took over and they were in charge and they could take whatever they wanted and do whatever they wanted and we were just... Second-class citizens in our own country. That would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? First of all, they hardly even have an army, so I don't know how that would happen. But just imagine. We wouldn't like that, would we? So that's how the Jews of Matthew's day felt about the Romans. Why are you here? Why are you in our country? Why are you ruling over us? We don't like this. And so due to their misery, the Jewish people hotly debated the meaning of Old Testament prophecies because they were full of promises of a coming deliverer, the Messiah, who's going to save us from this. When will he come? What will he look like? What will he do? Maybe we should start the fighting now, and then God will back us up. There was a group called the Zealots, and, and they didn't want to wait around for the Messiah. They said, grab your sword, grab your bow and arrow, let's start killing Romans now, and God will back us up. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was called the Zealot, because he used to be a Zealot before he joined Jesus. So the Gospel of Matthew is, is his contribution to this contentious debate. And the message of his book is very simple. The Messiah has already come. And it came, he came in a way no one expected. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is a picture of Abraham and Moses and King David, but without the flaws. There's no Bathsheba in, David, in, uh, in Jesus' life, thank God. But he's a picture of what King David was supposed to be, a perfect example. And the way to save Jerusalem and the way to save Israel is to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And Matthew remembers something Jesus said, and he quotes it, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. If they had just believed in Jesus, they could have saved themselves. But the Jewish elites of their time, the religious elites, 
suppressed Christianity. They killed James, the brother of Jesus. They did all they could to keep the people from believing in Jesus. And as a result, the times just got worse and more and more violent. And then there was the great Jewish revolt in AD 66. And after three and a half years of fighting, uh, the city of Jerusalem was besieged. People were starving. They were eating rats. Finally, the Romans took the city back and burnt it to the ground. Stone, not one stone was left on another. The temple was destroyed. The Jews were sent all over the world. And they never came back until 1948. They were kicked out of Israel for almost 2,000 years. Disaster. And it was avoidable if they had listened to Matthew's message. Now, how is all of that relevant to you and me? Well, think about this. Matthew's gospel was written for people going through troubled times. When the days seemed to be growing darker and darker, and disaster seemed to be looming just over the horizon. He wrote to a people divided along lines of religion, class, and ethnicity. And there was a corrupt, self-serving leadership who led the people astray. Does that sound familiar at all to anybody? In many ways, nothing has changed, has it? For one thing, the answer then is the same as the answer now. Jesus was the answer then, and he still is. Believe it or not, it just happened to work out that I would get to preach on the son of David, that theme in Matthew. I didn't ask for that, but it got assigned to me by the powers that be and the higher-ups. Maybe giving me Son of David was my dad's way of saying, hint, hint. You're 41. You need to hurry up and get married and have a son here. (laughs) Here, David, preach on Son of David. No, No, my dad wouldn't do that. My mom. Okay. Matthew uses the title Son of David ten times, which is more than the other Gospels combined. This emphasis was no accident. These words had a powerful meaning in his time to the Jews of his day, all because of Old Testament prophecy. So everyone back then knew that Nathan the prophet had promised to King David that God would raise up a ruler from one of his descendants who would be a deliverer and who would reign forever and ever. And so when Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, he's saying, Jesus is the promised ruler that you're waiting for to save you from the Romans. Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a lot more to that than meets the eye. We're going to look at this. But the first point I want to make for us today is Matthew's son of David was the prophesied king, and he still is. I want to look at 2 Samuel 7. And Jeremiah's going to put that. For some reason, I put it in the NIV in my notes, and I put it in the NKJV up here. So I'm just going to read it from here so I'm not reading something that's different than what we have. If we could get that up. 2 Samuel 7. Otherwise, I'll just read it from my notes. Oh, there it is. Okay. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is God through the prophet Nathan talking to King David. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Next verse. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So Solomon was David's son, one of them. He built the temple. But by Jesus' day, people understood that this promise was about somebody bigger than Solomon. Because Solomon, his throne did not endure. His body was barely in the ground before his son lost the northern kingdom. And eventually they lost the southern kingdom too. So that, that's not forever. But this promise is that someone will reign forever. So the Jews began to realize, this is about somebody other than 
than Solomon. This is about the coming Messiah. He's going to reign forever. What's this going to look like? What's, what's going to happen here? And so they began to call this expected deliverer the son of David. And so Matthew loves to have people call Jesus the son of David in his gospel because he's telling people this is the one. So I want to look with you at Matthew 21, 9. And I believe I have that one. Poor Jeremiah has to run the cameras and the, and the projector. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? They wanted, these religious elites wanted Jesus to rebuke the kids for calling him the Messiah. And instead, Jesus turns to them and says, he quotes Psalm 8 too, Out of the mouths of infants you have ordained praise. You, know, you only praise God. You don't praise a man. God deserves worship. That's a psalm about worshiping God. So he basically tells them, not only am I the Messiah, I'm God. And then he turns and leaves. Have a nice day. Walks away. <laughs> so good. You've got to love Jesus. You know, there's a line from an old hymn, many of you may have heard. It's, the hymn is called, This is My Father's World. And it says, This is my Father's world, and let me never forget that though the wrong seem oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Right now, in America and in the world, it does sometimes seem like the wrong are very strong. And it does seem like they're getting stronger, or things are getting darker. You know, my mom is a certain age, which I, don't, I won't say. She's not here, but she'll hear about it if I do. But she remembers, uh, she remembers saying the Lord's Prayer in school, back in a certain decade, which I won't say, because some of you can do mental math. So, now, where are we now in our country? So I just read a newspaper article in, a, in the New York Post yesterday. New York City Public Schools spent $200,000 this year to bring in drag queens to perform in the public schools. So look at the contradiction from when my mom was a kid and they had the Lord's Prayer in schools and the Ten Commandments on the walls to nowadays you have men dressed as women performing in front of kids. And I've seen the pictures and they have the kids putting money in their clothes and stuff. It's, it's really like, you can't even look at the pictures without being shocked, and it's in our schools right now. And it's not just in New York City, it's all over the place. Uh, so, we also have uh, some schools now where about 25% of the kids think that they're the other gender now. It's being taught so much that they're getting them to question their gender. And some schools have a policy where they call the kids by another name, refer to them as the other gender, get them set up through clinics with hormone therapy. Like a girl will take therapy to give her facial hair and, and a boy will take therapy to reduce his testosterone. And the parents don't even know about it. The parents aren't even told about it until it's already happened. Now, we're not here to judge anybody. And frankly, I think life is too short to waste time judging people. But is it God's design when he created you as the gender you are for you to surgically alter that or for you to encourage kids to do that? I don't think so. It's not God's design. It's not his plan for our lives. Frankly, I think it's actually child abuse. Right now, there's talk of packing the Supreme Court with extra justices. Some people say Biden needs to appoint at least four more justices, then we can get Roe versus Wade back and we can have abortion on demand back. 
you know, what would happen if we did that? It seems like my best guess would be the next Republican president will say, okay, you packed the court with four more justices, now we're going to appoint five more. And then the next Democrat will appoint six more, seven more, eight more, back and forth, back and forth. And before long, there'll be more justices than can fit in that court building. And the people who make those cute little black robes will run out of material, and they'll be forced to come to work in their bathrobes. <laughs> you know, there are certain people that don't care about protecting our institutions. They want power. They want abortion. They want little children questioning their God-given gender. And Paul is very clear that our enemies are not flesh and blood. These people, we're supposed to love these people. They're, they're deceived by the enemy into doing this, and we need to get them saved and delivered. We need to love them. But the real enemy here is the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms that are trying to deceive people into questioning their gender or to kill their baby. We used to know that a baby is human life. We used to know that only women can have babies. It's insane to say that a man can have a baby. We used to know that it was important to raise children to believe in God. So I'm asking you today, has anybody ever wondered, where does it all end? You know, think back how much times have changed in the last 20 years. What's the next 20 years going to look like? There's already people right now who will tell you the Bible is hate speech and it needs to be banned. And uh, how long before America is like China, where the church has to meet in houses, not in buildings, because we're under so much persecution? Where, where, does this, where is all this going? So in the midst of all this, Matthew has a message for us. Because he wrote this message to his own troubled times. And we live in troubled times too. Matthew's message is very simple. Jesus is still king. And the fact that Jesus is king dashes all our doubts and fears to pieces. All this work of the enemy in our country is a temporary, it's a breath of vapor, it's an illusion. It will be blown away by the breath of God's nostrils. God does win. The enemy does lose. We already know how the story ends. The enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the gospel will continue to advance. And the full number, the full number of people who will believe in Jesus who God knows and no one else knows that number, they will come into the kingdom before the last day. Isn't that exciting? Okay. You look a little serious right now. Did I get you down too much? Don't stress it. That's the point. Jesus is king. Jesus warned us that these days would come. He told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So my friends, yes, the enemy wants you to be overwhelmed. He wants you to feel like things are so bad, you might as well just shut the curtains, lock your door, and wait for the rapture. But Jesus is still king. His throne will endure forever. Today he sits on the throne. Tomorrow he will sit on the throne. The next, every tomorrow after that, he will sit on the throne. And here's the point for you. You do what you can, however dark it gets. Don't worry if you see other Christians not measuring up. You do what you know you're called to do, and just trust God with the rest. You intercede for America. You heal the sick, cast out demons, love that unlovable person. It's your job to prosper and thrive and be joyful so the world can see what you have, and they can want it, and they can say, why is that person so happy? Do you know it's your job to be full of joy? You better be doing it. And God will give you much fruit in that, and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against us. So this is part of what Matthew was saying to his generation. And it's a message that is absolutely intended for us today. That was a good first point, wasn't it? Woo! Amen. Okay. 
point number two. The son of David in Matthew was the prophesied healer. We're talking physical healing. We're talking emotional healing. We're talking spiritual healing. And I love this story in Matthew 9, 27. It's so full of so many good things. And I think we have that, Matthew 9, 27. This is a story of two blind guys who wouldn't take no for an answer. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. The reason he warned is because it would get so crowded that he couldn't even enter a town, and that would get in the way of his ministry. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Okay. Now, when these blind men call out, Son of David, why did they not say, Hey, Jesus of Nazareth? Why did they say, Son of David? They were making a very specific appeal to the promises of God. It was well known at that time that the Son of David, the Messiah, was going to bring healing in his wings. There were lots of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And at that time... They would get together in synagogues every Saturday, and people would just read from the scrolls. They would read whole long passages of Scripture every Saturday, and the people sat and listened. So just be lucky that we don't read like the whole book of Leviticus to you every single Sunday or something like that. That's what they had to go through. So they knew that the coming Messiah had certain prophecies, and the son of David was going to bring healing. And here's one example. This is from Isaiah 35. It's a well-known Messianic chapter. And we'll start with verse 3. I don't know if we have that. Strengthen the weak hands and make, the feeble, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are feel, fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Before I keep reading, do you remember when Jesus strengthened the feeble hands? Remember the shriveled hand? He healed the, the shriveled hand. And the steady, make steady or make firm the weak knees. Did he ever heal a lame person or a paralytic? Did he ever say to anybody, do not be afraid? Remember when he walked on the water and the disciples were like, it's a ghost. What does he say? What does he say to them? Be not, be not afraid. So Isaiah is prophesying very specific miracles that we know Jesus actually did. And Isaiah is 700 years before Christ. It's pretty amazing. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the, t- the tongue of the dumb sing. We'll stop there. They knew that the son of David was going to come and heal the blind. And so they shout out, Son of David, have mercy. Now, Matthew didn't just include this story for his generation. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew had future generations in mind. The Holy Spirit had you in mind when he included this story. He wanted you to know that Jesus is still the same healer today. He's your emotional healer. He's your physical healer. He's your spiritual healer. I'm going to look, at, look with you starting at verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. You know, I noticed when I read this that Jesus doesn't immediately stop and turn around. Now, if you can picture the scene, he's walking by probably with a crowd of disciples, and you have two blind men on the side of the road probably begging. And blind men... Uh, Back in times when roads are very crude and ancient, uh, crude and primitive, 
were not able to travel very fast, very fast on those roads. So, you know, you kind of had to hobble along. So they stand up as Jesus passes by. Who is it? Who's here? Oh, it's, it's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And they start shouting out, hey, son of David, have mercy. And what does Jesus do? Does he turn around? Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Here, let me heal you. No, it says he actually kept on walking and he went inside the house. I find that to be fascinating. I suppose he had his reasons. Maybe it's what they needed at the time. Maybe they needed to keep following after him, keep shouting, then follow him into the house. Maybe that built their faith. We never, we never know why God makes us keep asking, but we know he loves us and we know he's good. So these blind men are following after him and he walks into the house and then he still doesn't heal them. He actually stops and asks them a question. Do you believe? Then when they say yes, he finally heals them. So think about this. Those blind men had many opportunities not to be healed that day. As Jesus walked by, they could have just sat glumly in silence. Oh, it's Jesus. Huh. The Pharisees say he's nobody. I guess I'll just sit here. Or they could have got up and shouted, and he walks on by, and, oh, he's gone. Forget it. I guess he doesn't care about blind people. Sit back down. Or they could have followed him all the way into the house. And then when he asked, do you believe? They could have been like the Pharisees and said, prove it. Show us a miracle. And they wouldn't have gotten healed. There were four or five different points along that journey where they could have not got healed. The miracle was, was there for them, but only if they, if they pressed into it and pursued it. And there's a good lesson for us there. There are a lot of people, thousands probably, in Jesus' time who came within earshot as he passed by who needed healing desperately, but who didn't press in for that healing. And the Gospels don't really talk about that that much. Every once in a while you get a, a sentence like, and Jesus couldn't heal many people there because of their lack of faith. So you do kind of get a hint of it. But the Gospels like to focus on the, the people who do get healed. But make no mistake, there are plenty of women who needed healing who didn't grab onto his, the hem of his garment. And there are plenty of paralytics who didn't have them dig through the roof to get to Jesus. And there are plenty of blind men who didn't keep following after, keep shouting, press in, go into the building, not take no for an answer. But the miracle was there for those who would not take no for an answer. What is the lesson there for us today? We don't always understand why God makes us wait or makes us keep asking. But sometimes it's true for us. The miracle is there. It is. The miracle is there. But only for the one who shouts. Only for the one who gets up and keeps following after. For the one who keeps shouting. For the one who follows him into the house. For the one who won't let people say, oh, leave him alone. Quit bothering him. They say, no, I'm not going to let him alone. I'm going to get this miracle. And it's there for them. But they easily could have missed it. You have something in your life, perhaps, where you need a miracle. Don't just say, hmm, I wonder why God isn't giving me this, and then give up on it. Don't just pray once and then say, well, I guess it wasn't his will to heal me. We're to be like these blind men here. Keep following after. Keep pursuing. Keep pressing in. Do not take no for an answer. Don't let anybody tell you, leave him alone. Get your miracle by pressing in with faith. He wants to do it, but sometimes he wants us to pursue it. He says, you have not because you ask not, but if you ask, you will receive. Ask and keep on asking. I know you're all thinking amen in your hearts.
You know, many of us think of faith as a feeling you try to have when you ask for something. Like, okay, I need to have faith here. Oh, come on, have faith. And you ask for something. You know, it's not, it doesn't really work like that. It's not something you ramp up, ask for something, and then go back down to living a life of little faith. Faith is a lifestyle choice. It's a positioning of your heart. Stubbornly saying, I'm going to hold on to this promise until I get it. And the miracle is there for you when you stubbornly hold on. So, do you know that the universe has to bow to your faith? Somebody just laughed. I'm not going to look over there. <laughs> I'm not trying to sound like Oprah. Oprah likes to talk about, oh, the universe is going to give you this and that. You're not in charge of the universe and neither am I. God is in charge of the universe. But when you put your faith in the one who's in charge of the universe, the universe bows to that faith because it's under him. He's the king. So you put your faith in him, you hold on, and the universe will work itself out to match your faith. It will, God will actually reshape the structure of the entire universe to match the miracle that you're holding on to. That person gets their miracle. Last month, I was standing in an empty room in a new little studio house I moved into in Phoenix, imagining what I should put into the, the room. And you think things like a table or a couch, but then my mind kept wandering. Maybe I should get a pool table. Maybe I should get an indoor hot tub. Maybe I should get a cat. No, that's crazy. That's crazy. Don't even think about that. So I told the Lord, you know, I don't really want to have to buy a table. I don't want to have to buy a couch. Can you just give me a table and a couch? And I, I'm kidding you not. Within one week, somebody offered me a table. They didn't know that I needed furniture. I didn't tell them. I didn't mention it. They just said, I'm moving. Do you want this table? I was like, okay. Thank you, God. And then within a few days later, someone else brought me out into their garage. They had a New couch, barely used, sitting in their garage, and they said, I don't want this couch. Do you want it? And they even paid somebody to drive the couch to my house. So, why does God do stuff like that for me? I don't deserve that. No. I said that was crazy. God does stuff like that for us because we ask and because He wants to show us His nature. He wants to show you His nature. He doesn't just want to give me a table and a couch. He wants me to know how much he loves me. He wants you, every good thing he's done for you has two purposes. One, to help you with that thing. Two, to show you how much he loves you. It's very easy to be like, sometimes the disciples would see a miracle, then they would harden their hearts and not understand the miracle. It's very easy for us to want to turn to the Messiah, the son of David, and say, okay, be my provider. Okay, be my healer. Oh, you also, want me, you also want to be my Lord too? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I didn't know I was going to have to give up control. The greater miracle by far for these blind men, besides their healing, would have been to make Jesus their Lord too, not just their healer. It says that they were sternly warned and they disobeyed. They couldn't have cared less that he told them, please don't go spread the word about this. It's going to really mess up my ministry. They just, they just went and did it anyway. They got their healing. To them, the Messiah was someone who could give them their healing. But the bigger miracle would have been to make him their Lord. Now, for you, when you press in for a miracle, when you think about the good things God has done for you, be willing to understand the bigger miracle for you, which is to understand how much he loves you, understand his kindness, and understand that he did that to show you who he is so he could start a relationship with you. Because the biggest miracle of all for us is 
that relationship with Jesus. It's more helpful to our lives even than give, receiving our sight or ability to walk or any other healing. And we can have that right now, a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, my friends. At the end of the day, this life is temporary. Sight is temporary. The ability to walk is temporary because these bodies are temporary. But that relationship with Jesus will last forever. How much does he love you? What has he done for you? Have you thought about it? Have you considered it? Have you savored it? Or have you just gone on with your life? I'm going to pray right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're our king. We thank you that no matter how dark times get in this country, that you are actually in charge. And we don't need to stress. We don't need to worry. We're just going to live for you. And we're going to let you take care of all the other stuff. We're going to relax and we're going to have peace right now. We're not going to get stressed about the news. We're not going to get stressed about when it seems like our country is falling apart at the seams. Because you are the king and you're in charge. We declare peace for each one of us today in our hearts. No matter how dark things seem to get nationally or in our private lives, you are the king and so we have peace. And for each one of us, we thank you for our healing, emotional, physical, spiritual. We believe for it. And we also ask for the, for the bigger miracle to know that you do those things to show us your nature, your kind and loving heart to us, towards us. I declare that each one here will know how much you love them, how wide and deep and high is the love of God, because that's the only way to live. It's the only way to live. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still heals today through his church. You need a miracle in your life. Come on up to the front here. We have a team that will minister in faith. and Believe God with you for what you need from God today. I feel in God that there's, there's a few people here, several people that are jammed up by circumstances you don't understand. You don't understand why things went the way they did or the way they're going right now, and you're jammed up about it with God. And God wants you to press into Him and His Lordship and to learn to live with mystery and realize that there can be an answer, which is Jesus, before you actually have a full solution to your situation. The answer is Jesus, and He wants you to grab a hold of Him, call on Him, and get the help of following Him, being His disciple. Don't back off and judge God. Don't allow yourself to be jammed up. Life is too short to be jammed up by circumstances we don't understand. I feel like there's a few people like that. I want to, I want to invite you to come to the altar and seek God humbly. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. So come up and, and let us pray with you and um, help you and pray and believe God with you for a breakthrough so you won't be jammed up anymore. And that, uh, that goes to everybody at home too. Turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. Let Him be the path of your life, even with things you don't understand. God bless us all. We love you. Jesus loves you. Remember, He's with you. He's for you. May He lead you to green pastures and still waters every day moving forward. Thanks for being with us today.